Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. about exactly 
how it's been impacting us and uh, what's going on and how it's happening. We did our show a couple of weeks ago about uh, the fact that we believe that uh, as long as they thought white folks was dying, they, they wanted to keep the, the country closed. They wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone was social distancing. And as soon as they found out that the majority of the folks that was passing away, dying and catching it was black folks, they said, oh, well, let's open up the country. We, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to stay in lockdown. Um, and so I suggested that and talked to uh, my audience and talked to my, uh, my guest the last time we were here and about the, lock, about the lockdown. Because if you remember, during that time, they were saying, hey, let's, um, let's pay people $1,200. And you got Republicans to even say, okay. Now, Republicans saying, let's give everybody a paycheck of $1,200. Then they were even talking about giving us a monthly paycheck if he was out of work, uh, just so that the businesses would stay open, would still have their employee base. But then they gave businesses billions of dollars. But changed once they found out it was all of us dying. You had the lieutenant governor come out and say, uh, grandparents would be fine with dying to save the economy for their grandchildren. I know I've talked to a lot of people and they've said that they'd be fine with dying and doing that. And my question and my point was, well, then hell, go ahead and die. Save your grandchildren then. <laughs> if, you're so, if you're so fond of it and so sure of it, then you'd be the first one to die and let everybody else benefit off of your behind dying. So let's do it that way. And then they came up with the 1200 Now they're talking about $2,000 a month. No, they're not going to uh, pass because they were complaining about the 1200 saying that people were going to stay at home. They were getting more money uh, from the uh, from the 1200 than they were getting from their paycheck, so there'd be no reason for them to go back to work. I doubt it's very true because if all you're going to get is 1200 one time, but you're used to getting 1200 or 2000 or 3000 a month, that's not going to help you sustain your household. It's not going to help you go on. And it's this mentality that takes us to Georgia, North Carolina, Indianapolis, and other states where black life is irrelevant to the ecosystems in which white life li- exists. In North Carolina, a white mob led by an off-duty deputy sheriff attempted to strong-arm a mother and son and search their home, break into their home, and, and essentially just, you know, take over while they were looking for a missing white girl, apparently assuming that the black youth, uh, that she was with another black youth from her high school, and that this particular uh, house, the Shepherd House, was where she was. And then you have in Indianapolis, Sean Reed, while on Facebook running from police, is shot and killed. It was later reported that Sean had a weapon. Well, we haven't got any confirmation of that. At least I haven't seen any confirmation of that. And then they said it was a shootout. Now, everyone heard what I'm saying. He's like, you know, come get me, help me do this. And he was running away. So I'm thinking if he was going to run away uh, with no shirt on, running in with a phone in his hand, filming him and FaceTiming, at what point would he then decide that he's going to stop and try to shoot at three, four police officers that are chasing him? At what point would that have been a smart move? I don't think so. I don't know, but we'll find out and see what happens. And then, of course, you have the police officer mocking him at the end, saying, looks like we're going to have a closed casket, homie. Things like that and, and the areas, whether it was a black cop or a white cop, is just a matter of the mentality that law enforcement has towards black life. Which brings us here tonight. Well, we have Ahmad Aubrey, shot and killed by two armed white men, one a former cop and the other his son, who were out following Aubrey because they thought, they thought, so they said, he looked like the suspect of a burglary that had occurred months earlier. And the, Mike, the, the McMichaels pair said that they were making a citizen's arrest something that is permitted in Georgia. However, in Georgia, under the law, you have to, one, witness the crime, and that crime also has to be a felony. And what they said was that he went into an abandoned house or vacant house that was under construction. Uh, And so because he went into that house, he walked through the house, which, mind you, is open. There's no garage door on it. There's no doors on it because it's under construction. So walking in and walking out, there is no breaking and entering. There's none of that going on. And if anything, it would have been trespassing, which would have been a misdemeanor. So they followed him. And uh, uh, you then see 
and this and this aspect of, of what happened later through the video that many of us have already seen. But nearly three months later, this this video surfaces. Now, all I keep hearing in my ears is Trayvon Martin, Trayvon Martin, rather than Ahmad Aubrey. I'm hearing Trayvon Martin all over again. And as I think more and more about it, as I was thinking about it today, as I was preparing for the show tonight and thinking about it over the weekend, it just started fueling my blood and really ticking and pissing me off because if this video, just like the audio of, of uh, Trayvon Martin had not come out, we would have never known about this. It would have stayed, you know, brushed under the surface because these two white dudes told authorities that it was self-defense, that it was, you know, they were protecting themselves. Now, mind you, they both had guns. Aubrey had his fist. And he's wailing on the sun because he has a shotgun uh, uh, at him. And they're saying it's self-defense. But yet you were following him and you were trailing him and you were trying to attack him or stop him or arrest him with no probable cause and no no, uh, uh, legal authority to do so. In both these cases, the white suspects told the police it was self-defense and white cops, white district attorneys, let white murderers walk. This is the white code. My guest tonight. Is Georgia's NAACP president, Reverend James Woodall. Reverend Woodall is a native of Riverdale, Georgia, where he is an eight-year Army veteran. He is a Silver Life member of the NAACP and former state president of the Georgia Youth College Division. He is currently pursuing a Master's of Divinity at Morehouse School of Religion, and he currently serves as the Associate Minister of Pleasant Grove Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. Also joining me is my good friend uh, from Atlanta, and uh, represent, uh, used to represent Fulton County, is uh, former state senator Vincent Ford. He was a Democratic whip uh, representing Fulton County, and he is also known very much so for his authorship of the nation's toughest predatory lending law. Senator Ford is the surrogate of uh, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, and we've had him on the show a number of times, and I want to welcome him back to the show as well. If you want to join the call, join the show, excuse me, give us a call at 516 516- Five nine zero zero one four three. That's five one six five nine zero zero one four three. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for good having evening, me. Good Kelly. evening. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Senator, let me start with you because we were having a little pre dialogue before the show started. But uh, here we are again. And it, and it, 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 I wasn't around in the fifties and sixties, but I've seen and heard a whole lot. And I I understand. Uh, what happened to black men, especially in the South then, have we returned to that era with the shooting of uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery? Uh, uh, first of all, let me say how much I appreciate being on the show with President Woodall. He is a uh, rising star. He's a young brother, but he's a rising star in the civil rights movement here in Georgia. Uh, let me respond to your question about Are we going back to the 50s and 60s? I'll be very honest with you. I don't think anything has really changed. You know, the The truth of the matter. As much as things have changed, things have remained the same. Mm -hmm. And what is different here uh, is that we've got video of the uh, lynching. In, uh, and so, and it's broadcast, uh, it's broadcast uh, time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. So, in, if not for that video, we could argue, well, it's the cover-up uh, would have uh, been successful. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but the lynching, it is it, it was a lynching uh sure enough. And uh and I really want to talk about something that has not been discussed a lot. And I may you you know, we may have some breaking news a little bit later on, but you your listeners need to understand this has been through the hands of 
four prosecutors, four district attorneys, the Attorney General of Georgia, and now the Department of Justice. Something, uh, I mean, that is a process question, but it is a process question that is very important uh, for us to understand. So before the show is over, I want to talk about what we know about that. You know, you've got four district attorneys that have had their hands on this. Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Senator. Absolutely, because that, that's mm-hmm. actually a question I have um, as, 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 we, uh, as we discuss this. That's one of the questions I have to talk about because I noticed that myself. And I had to say to myself, okay, if that's the case, what's going to be different now? And and with that, let me go to to Reverend Woodall because um, I mean, you, you're a young brother, you, you're young, up and coming, as the senator said. You you kind of following in not necessarily his direct footsteps, but in his civil rights footsteps and and working in civil rights. When you ran for president and and got elected to president at 25, uh, I think you're what 26 now, maybe 27. Uh, what did you ever think that you would still be fighting the same fight that Martin Malcolm, John Lewis, and Abernathy were fighting in the sixties? Of course, um, and thank you for that question. I, I I ran for that exact reason. I believe that uh, you know God has prepared us for this moment and prepared us well. Because when I saw about six years ago in Statesboro, Georgia, as I saw the world watch a man literally scream the last three words of his life, "I can't breathe." And then I would go into Statesboro and Screven County and, and, and Truthland County and the, and the counties outside of Atlanta, and I heard the same three words being cried out, I can't breathe. And so I said, the Georgia NAACP and the NAACP at large, we have to be prepared to feed the beast because we are in a war. And if we have an NAACP that cannot fight, in the words of Nelson Rivers, it cannot bark, it cannot bite, then we have to do something different. And so... I, I took this moment of urgency very, very seriously, and I believe that we could mobilize, we could build capacity to mobilize our people, and that's exactly what under my uh, administration we have prepared to do. And I think we, we're becoming more and more successful, but we still have a long way to go because even though we are 111 years old, the fact that we're still fighting white supremacy tells us that something is wrong. And so we're going to continue to be very truthful and honest and operate in integrity. But most of all, be direct, you know, be direct at what what it is that we're fighting. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited, though I'm not happy that we have to fight it. I'm excited that I'm, I'm fighting alongside freedom fighters like yourself and uh, Senator Ford. Senator, I mean, looking back, like you just said, and, and as I said in my opening, but for the video, we would not know. And even with the video, we know, but they even tried because, like you said, the, the, the uh, district attorney had the video. Then she recused herself and gave it to the next district attorney. He recused himself, but then wrote a statement about it, which I, I, I was going to get to later, but I'm, I'm already here now, so, so we can get into it. But it's like um, everyone is, has touched it, but no one wants to do anything about it. That's why I keep hearing Trayvon Martin over and over again in my head because had someone not protest, rally, gotten the, the, the audio out, uh, you know, had all these things available to us, then we would not know. And, and these guys, Zimmerman, saying it was self-defense and they let him walk away, you know, uh, stand your ground law, although he wasn't in his house. He wasn't anywhere near his home. He followed uh, Trayvon Martin. These uh, McMichaels, they weren't in their house. They followed uh, Aubrey, ran him down, and, and, and then came out the car to stop him with their rifles and with their guns. There, there, there seems to be a disconnect with this group, this white code that they follow, that says it doesn't matter what we do as long as we say we fear for our life, and it's okay. And then white cops, white juries, white uh, district attorneys say, oh, okay, you were scared. Yeah, okay, and they let it go. But if that person were black, it would never happen. It would never stand. We'd be under the jail before we even got to a trial. You know, and we don't have the right to be afraid. White people, white men, armed white men have the right to be afraid when it comes to black people. And uh, so you're precisely right 
But this is, I mean, the what has gone on in all quarters as far as the prosecution of this is, is nothing short of malfeasance. You had Jackie Johnson, the presiding district attorney, recuse herself, which was proper. Then the attorney general, Chris Carr, appoints Barnhill. Barnhill takes the case. Mm-hmm. One of the questions, but he has a conflict of interest because he's worked in the same office and knows the perfect the son. Right, right. The son. Right. The son one of the two. And then why does Carr not know that? Why does Carr appoint him? But then Barnhill does something that which is unethical. He writes a a, a letter clearing these two people, and then right. he recuses himself. Right. And then you have a third district attorney, Durden, I believe from Waycross. Right. And I don't know if we, in the attorney general, appoint him. He recuses himself, and then finally, I've t- and I guess it was today, the Attorney General appoints Joyette Holmes from Cobb County. Uh, mm. So the Attorney General Carr has appointed three people, and then also he asked the DOJ to investigate the process Right. Since the incident happened. Right. That investigation ought to include an investigation of how cars handled it. How a car handled it, correct. Correct. Yeah, so you uh, have, now uh huh. So let me ask you this. Now the person who's just appointed from Cobb County, because that's new, that, that I did not know because I everything I was watching and looking for today was that the three were there. Uh-huh. Um I didn't know about the Cobb County. Uh is this person white or black? She's an African American Republican appointed by okay. Brian Kent last year. Okay. June. Okay, so that's that's what they did. <laughs> so they, they went they stayed on their side, but then they picked a, a black woman who would uh uh in essence, you know, black woman or man, doesn't matter, but a Republican who's gonna tote the line and follow the, the way of, of the governor and everyone else down this down this rabbit hole and say, oh, there was nothing there and there's and everything is fine. Or they're going to slap them on the wrist and give them nothing and then tell them they got time served and they're going to get out anyway. Um, what, what's what's happening? What, what's happening, Senator? Because it's just crazy. I mean, it, there, there's well, so much that, that, that's just irking me to, to high heaven about it all. And I keep going back to the, what, I, what I've titled this, this, this uh, broadcast and this show to be, The White Code. They're, they're, they certainly live by a different code and they always seem to get by or get away with it. Well, you know that I'm a historian by training. Right. Kevin Michael. And as a historian, uh, there were going back to slavery by law and by custom, every white person had the authority to oversee any black person who was out and about without their master. Slave patrols. Or customs. So yeah. if you saw a black person out and about, you could ask them for their uh, their pass. Right. Because slaves were given a pass to be away from the plantation. Mm-hmm. You could ask them for a pass. If they did have a pass, you could what? Put a gun on them and arrest them and return them to their master. Now, if you were a free black, <laughs> uh, you could be taken into custody as well. Uh, so this, what happened to these brothers, this brother, what happened to Mike Brown, what happened to Trayvon Martin, uh, well, Trayvon Martin in particular, and his brother, Mike Brown, was, uh, but it's all part of the historical legacy of slavery, is that white 
supremacy allows black, I mean, white men, whether civilian or in uniform, to police and over-police and oppress black men and women in the moment. That's what mm-hmm. happened last February, and it's only through the hard work of brothers like Woodall and others that we have the uh, system reacting. But we're going to have to be ever vigilant, Brother Woodall. You know that. We cannot let up for a minute, an hour, or a day. Uh, uh, just because they brought charges doesn't mean That's right. we're going to have justice. Uh, That's indictment right. is not justice. We'll never have yeah. justice by virtue of the fact we'll never have that brother back. His That's mother right. will never, ever be able to. On Mother's Day, on any coming Mother's Day, on on, on, on the on the day that he was born, Mother's Day, he was born on Mother's Day uh, when uh, when she had him. And and uh, uh, Reverend Woodall, uh, the senator talked about whether you was you know a civilian or in uniform, what you can do and and the the whole premise behind white supremacy and and what it has done and what it where its roots lie. And I want to I want to uh, stay on the same topic, but I want to shift jurisdictions because when I opened up, I talked about Georgia, North Carolina, Indianapolis, and and I was uh, uh, privy to a, a, a video and and things that happened in North Carolina uh, a few nights ago, um, where a off-duty sheriff in uniform uh, with about fifteen white mob. Folks with him with AR-15 guns, you know, attempted to bum rush uh, a, a home of a black mother and son looking for a missing white girl. And I talked about this in my opening. And apparently, uh, they had been schoolmates or, or what have you, but turned to find, come to find out that he didn't know the person, did not go to the same school. But this deputy was trying to force his way into the home, search the home, told the people that he was going to come in and look through the home. And but for the mother saying, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. And the community around her, people seeing the commotion, calling the, the sheriffs who actually monitor that county and, and, and uh, actually are in there. The, everything the senator said is happening right here, 2020, right now, and just happened a few days ago. And but for um, neighbors and friends calling the actual police who belong there. This man, or if the son was there by himself, we might have another Aubrey on our hands where he would have gone in the house or the the son would have resisted and they would have shot the kid and he would have said he was fearing for his life and it would be something else going on. I mean, what, what you're in that age group. You're, you're in that age group where, where police are, are targeting you and, and chasing you. How does this make you feel? You know, well... It, it, it's it's a it's a challenge because life is so uh, precious and valuable in the fact that you can't even walk outside of your house without being li- literally in fear for your life. And so, you know, in our community, we've we've seen at least in my generation, but you know, we can also add this to others that there's in our consciousness, I believe we've developed a, a sort of resistance that really flies in the face of white supremacy. I mean, in some ways, we still have way, uh, you know, work to do, but we live in this vacuum or this continuum, if you will, that, that really forces us to, to, to push past that. And so a part of the struggle and the challenge for us, particularly in this role as NWCP state president, is how do we really deconstruct the lies and the myths that white supremacy convinces us of, both of ourselves and the world around us, but then, you know, how do you deconstruct the system altogether? Because it's one thing to imagine a, a better world. There's another thing to actually put skin in the, on the ground and put skin in the game and actually work to, be, to, to really break those things down. And so as far as, you know, the interaction between police and law enforcement in our community, that, that is going to be an ongoing conversation because at the very root of, of the institution of community policing, it's, it's slavery. And so we can't ignore that, and you can't develop a, a system that was literally designed to keep us in bondage to, to, to govern and police black bodies, then you, you somehow believe 
that over a span of time that is going to change in its, by its inception. So I think we have to really renegotiate some of the agreements that were made from previous generations in how we engage these systems and really and unapologetically uh, destroy them. Senator, now, uh, uh, Reverend Woodall just said mm-hmm. something that just was very key, um, and what he was saying was um, the, the system itself and, and deconstructing the system. And I remember when Trump was elected and um, Steve Bannon talked about deconstructing the government and deconstructing the system and how methodically they've gone about doing that. And, 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 and uh, uh, Brother Woodall is, is exactly right in that we have to not only put our skin in the game, put our resources in the game, put our attitude and our, our, our realization in the game, but we have to do something like that because in, in, in 2042, in, in less than 20 years or in 20 years or even before then, we're supposed to be the majority. And if we're the majority, but we have not deconstructed the system that has kept us in bondage, we can be the majority, still the minority, and still in bondage, and we're still playing by their rules. What, how do we or what do we do in order to get rid of those white codes um, that, that I proclaim and, and start trying to do just what uh, uh, Brother Woodall is talking about? Well, well I, I think you- – Go, go ahead, Senator. Senator Ford. Senator Ford. No, I, I, what I was going to say is at the time, you know, what we know from our observation study research is that at the time when society is a society, particularly a multicultural society such as ours, is changing, that's when you have the most resistance from those who believe they are losing power. Uh, You know, when Barack Obama is elected black president, the Tea Mm -hmm. Party is in its ascendancy. Mm -hmm. So it is not, it's cause and effect when a certain tier of white society believes they are losing power, then they will go to whatever extreme, even becoming, you know, moving closer to being fascist. Uh, And then the, I call Trump's election, the victory of the Tea Party. And then you have Charlottesville, et cetera. But there are a couple Mm -hmm. other things that are very interesting about this, particularly what happened in Virginia is that the mob is led by a sheriff's deputy. Right. You know, what we know in the South... In uniform. In uniform, mind you. (laughs) What we know about in the South is it is not uncommon for mobs to have law enforcement in them uh, aware of what is, if at the very least, aware, and in oftentimes what participating in the uh, mob activity. Uh, so you know, the, for example, the three civil rights workers in 1964, <laughs> when they were let out of the sheriff's jail, the sheriff's deputy and the sheriff what? are the ones that ran them down and brought them to the mob. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in, uh, and here with Brother Arbery's case, you have, in effect, the law enforcement. Remember, the district attorney, a district attorney is the ultimate law enforcement in any particular judicial Mm -hmm. circuit, you have the district attorney collaborating with the murderers. In effect, I mean, that's what it was, a collaboration with the murderers. That's exactly what happened. Right. So what you have is law enforcement making common cause with the murderers. And so, and, uh, you know, you've got February, March, April, May, June, May, uh, rather, 
uh, and you have, I mean, it was a Herculean event. And the community to get an indictment. All right. Just imagine it, what it's going to take to get uh, final justice done. Exactly. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, uh, something about that just just uh, uh, triggered something in me about the whole idea of what Brother Woodall said about the slave uh, uh, culture and slave mentality. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come right back. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Social distancing slows the spread of coronavirus. So if you have a fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your healthcare provider before going in. More info at coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I can't believe he found them. He seems sorry. We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm honestly impressed that he was able to do it. Right? What did he balance on that big chair? Yeah, I mean... I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year. I really thought we had hidden them well. If they can find their presence, they can find a gun. 911, what is your emergency? Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. You're listening to Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics. And your source for the social economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this is Kelly Michael Williams, your host, and uh, we want to just uh, uh, thank our guests tonight, uh, Senator Vincent Fort, uh, former Senator Vincent Fort from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Fulton County. And of course, we also have tonight with us for the first time, uh, Reverend James Woodall, who is the president of the Georgia State, Nash, uh, State NAACP um, there in, uh, in Georgia. Uh, Reverend Woodall, um, you had uh, talked about uh, uh, components of slavery, and then as I thought about uh, talking to the senator and what he was saying, it dawned on me and just and just the realization of, of things that we recognize and realize in life, and then it kind of hits you and makes you say, oh my God, you're right. The idea that we had slavery, the idea that um, all the the, the slave patrol and slave codes and everything that was put in place for our slavery. The reality of it is, is that slavery was never supposed to end. It was put in place and there, there, there really wasn't an idea that that was supposed to stop. It wasn't supposed to end. And all the laws and, and the way everything was been written and everything that has gone on until, of course, the Civil War happened, it was supposed to stay the same. Now, could you imagine, could you think about all the things that we're dealing with right now today and how you were uh, mentioning um, the reality of the fact that we have to deconstruct all those laws, those policies, those things that have been put in place, the systematic racism that we still deal with because it's in the system, um, excuse me, that we're still dealing with. And that idea kind of hit me. It's like, you know what? The slave culture was established, but it was never meant to be abolished. It, it, they put it in place because they always thought it would be in place. And would it not been for the Civil War, it would still be in place. And it's like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a harsh reality that many of us probably have to realize that that's why we still deal with what we deal with, because those systems are still in place, but the mentality of those systems are still in place, Reverend Woodall. 
So a few things. One, when we look at slave culture, and this is kind of where I do a lot of my my, my work theologically and scholar in my scholarship, is when we look at the slave culture and how it really permeates the consciousness of black people and black in black culture and black community. What we see is that the the consciousness that was slavery on the, on the on the on the face of white supremacy, what it did was it never was eradicated, nor was it ever removed. It simply only take, took uh, face and, and shape and form in other institutions. And so, as we began to have conversations about liberation and civil rights and those kinds of things, what we have done this will be a categorical denial on many on on, on the part of many elders. But what we have uh, what we have done in many ways is simply taking the white face off of white supremacy and just put a black one there. And so we're going to have to have that conversation. We also need to talk about the institutions that we seek uh, reform and we seek, you know, resolve in. Primary example in this case with Ahmaud Arbery, the very systematic failure was not only to the, the prosecutorial misconduct of the district attorneys, but the fact that they believed that they were protected because the black body was a threat to them and they needed self-defense from it. And so as we talk about how we resolve um, this situation in this moment, you have, you know, people talking about uh, hate crimes and those kinds of things, and those are great, but we have to get into into the source of why we are here. It was not simply because hate was a part of, you know, this, this crime, but rather there was a simple, there was a simple um, understanding that they could do this because this was the culture. This was the consistent pattern and practice that they got so used to time and time again. This was not the first case. And so at some point, if we as leaders are going to have conversations about how do we build community and how do we build a, a consensus as to how we you know, make black life matter, if we start the conversation as a reactive emotion, then we're losing to begin with. To be able to think uh, really, really seriously and very strategically and intentionally, and most of all, unapologetically, about how do we save our people. I, 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 I'm with you right there, uh, Brother Woodall. Senator Ford, um, we were discussing the DA recusing themselves earlier, and I think it was Bernhall uh, who did so. And in his uh, statement, as, as, as you talked about, um, he says that it appears their intent was to stop and hold this criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. Under Georgia law, this is perfectly legal. He wrote that on April 2nd. The the fact of the matter that he already identified uh, Aubrey as a criminal suspect and the fact that he said that uh, it was their intent, it appears their intent, appears their intent as if he already knows what it was that they were doing. And then to say that uh, it's perfectly legal for them to stop and hold him and wait for law enforcement, which under Georgia law, in fact, says they have to actually witness it, and it has to be a felony. So here, yeah. where you, where, uh, where uh, um, uh, Brother Woodall is talking about, it's not the first time, which clearly it isn't, because I always believe when you do something, you have to have done it before to feel comfortable enough to do it again and feel confident enough that you can get away with it or at least if it's your first time doing it, you've seen enough people get away with it before that you already know what to say and what to do and how to act in response to be able to get it. Now, how do you have a conflict of interest when you can't, when, when, you, when you write a letter absolving the person of the crime, but then, as you say, recuse yourself after you do this, as opposed to doing it beforehand and just saying, I can't because his son works in my, works in my office and I don't feel that I can actually fairly judge this this uh, case or put someone in charge of it. This is this is just a, a, a repeat of everything we see across the country in every jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, and let me just be very methodical. Barnhill, after Johnson recuses herself, Barnhill is appointed is appointed by Chris Carr, the Georgia Attorney General. Why didn't the attorney general know that Barnhill had a conflict. Then Barnhill writes a letter absolving these two people of any responsibility, justifying their killing this brother 
And then after that, he recuses himself. Now, mm-hmm. if you're going to recuse yourself, you it is unethical for him to be writing a letter clearing. Because but, 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 by, Senator, virtue of, by virtue of recusing yourself, you have a conflict or the appearance of a conflict. Then <laughs> the attorney, Georgia Attorney General, Chris Hart, then appoints Durden from Waycross. Then he recuses himself, and now gives it to the attorney general in Cobb County. My, the old folks used to say something rotten in the cotton. And the rottenness is not confined to the people who recuse, recuse themselves. Why is, why is Carr appointing these people, Barnhill and Durden, that have their uh, – that have conflicts of interest or the appearance of a conflict of interest. Right. Uh, right. I mean, we're going to have to, and I, I know I'm harping on this, but process matters it's because important. this is a process, a criminal justice process. Now it's in the hands of a fourth district attorney, and we're just going to have to remain ever vigilant. And that's why I'm glad, I mean, Brother Woodall and the other people involved in this. Because I'm outraged. I'm just going to be very honest with you. I'm well, you outraged and me both, to Senator. my core. You and me both. I'm if, outraged if I, to my if, core. If I could, if I could say uh, this real, real. But go, let go me ahead, get Reverend. But go, oh, go ahead. as go opposed ahead, to being outraged, we need to have a strategy and a plan mm-hmm. from now until the income on this mm-hmm. thing. That's uh, that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead, go ahead, Brother Most definitely, and I wanted to just follow up with Senator Fort's point. The only reason George Barneal recused himself, the only reason why he recused himself is because the mother would not let up. George Barneal had the case for six weeks. He had already written a statement saying that they were justified. He literally used the statute line by line saying why they were justified. The only reason we are here is because of the determination and the will and the strength of a black woman not willing to let her son's death be in vain. The only reason. And so it is incumbent upon us, to to Senator's point, it is incumbent upon us to be consistent in our pursuit of justice, to ensure that this moment doesn't pass us by and allow it to just be used as a political mechanism to fundraise and to get you know, popularity and celebrity and those types of things. We have to change the system down there in South Georgia, and we cannot do it by being up here in Atlanta. We have to go there, put some boots on the ground, and organize our people. And that's what the end of us people will be preparing to do. And, and so with that, uh, Brother Woodall, is there, is there any faith, given what we know, given the fact that we've, we've uh, uh, got four district attorneys now, um, the the governor is now talking about, oh my God, it's just such a travesty, which he already knew about it. Everyone has seen this video from the top to the bottom. Everyone knows about it, but now we're going to call for the Justice Department to come in, and we already know about this Justice Department. We already know about how they've they've uh, 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 sent it from from Jeff Sessions on, especially to this 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 crackhead that's in there now. We know exactly who they are and, and what they are. They have. Um, uh, uh, dismantled the Civil Rights Division. They've um, uh, pulled back or re- rescinded um, holders' policies in terms of how they prosecute and, 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 and persecute uh, African Americans. And they've, they've done all this under the guise of how they're making uh, justice better and, and freer for us. But is there any real belief that even with the Justice Department coming in, that things are going to actually come about in a justifiable manner for the results of what this, uh, this mother should get given that her son was gunned down in cold blood. You know, when you look at what justice is, our, ju- our, our belief in what justice is cannot be an end result. It has to be the process. We have to, we have to, we, we have to continue until every single stone is left unturned. And so Though, yes, we're going to push and fight and advocate and organize to ensure that a conviction is sought, 
but our our efforts has to be beyond simple in in results. At the end of the day, we have no permanent friends or permanent enemies. We only have the permanent interests, and that's the liberation of our people. And so, if if we have communities that are literally under siege and under threat of of physical violence due to the fact that they believe that their lives matter, then we still have not won. And so, um, to your point or, or question and inquiry about whether or not we we have faith in uh, the justice system working, um, you know, we don't have faith in people. We have faith in God, and the God we serve tells us that God is able to deliver us, and we will continue to fight until the that victory is won. I'm going to take a call here. Um, she said so. Hello, caller. Hello, caller. Okay. Apparently, our caller had another conversation to take care of, so we're going to move on, right? Uh, um, uh, Senator, what's at stake for us? You know, what's at stake is monumental, uh, you know, and, and it can't be overstated. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has to be seen in the context of the political context and social context that we're in. What all got to it? We are in a a period when you have this Justice Department in full retreat from the protection of the rights of people of color, voting rights, etc. So it, I am not heartened by the referral of the case to the Department of Justice. We are, um, you have, uh, you know, uh, the situation in North Carolina. I mean, but we know as black people and as of, and people of goodwill of all colors, we know that these happen on a regular basis, mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis. So we are in the era of Charlottesville. We're in the era of, uh, you know, so many affronts for the rights of black people, stealing our votes, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have a responsibility, uh, the NAACP uh, and others, to do what is create a movement. Uh, you know, the, the most important thing that came out of Trayvon Martin and uh, Jordan Davis and Mike Brown is that the Black Lives Matter movement came out of that. We need movement to sustain. We cannot allow this is this, uh, our very mother to have to fight like she fought for her to be the one to call and push and browbeat these folks to do the right thing. It's mm-hmm. just inexcusable on our part. She mm-hmm. should know that she's never, and she, I think she knows that now, but we should make sure that she is never alone. We should make sure that that family knows we will always be there for them. We have to create a movement, not a movement of anger only. Uh, that's justifiable, our anger, but we have to right. just Strategic. strategic. We have right. to be marathon runners yeah. and be ready to, to fight on this issue, uh, Kelly. How, how can how can people get in contact with you, Senator? How can they follow you? Get in contact with you? How can they reach you? Uh, best thing to do is get with me by my email address, Senator Fort, uh, and that's with a T, Fort, like in Fort Knox, Senator Fort at Gmail. Sounds uh, great. Brother, brother yep. Woodall, what's at stake for us? Our, our, our lives. That's literally what's at stake. Our lives, our livelihood, our legacy, our 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 creator, right? That's what's at stake. Literally everything that our ancestors ever fought for 
it is up to us to literally carry the torch and take it to the future. If we do not take this moment with the level of urgency that it requires, I believe literally everything is at stake, um, and I'm not willing to let that go. So we're going to continue to fight. We're going to continue to organize. We're going to continue to do what John Lewis calls getting good trouble, and we're going to continue to do everything we can do and in our power and capacity. And if we don't have the power and our capacity, we're going to find somebody who does so that we can make sure that justice does roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And, and how can we get in contact with you and follow you? Most definitely. So the easiest way to stay in contact with us is by going directly to our website at naacpga.org, or you can follow us on social media at Georgia underscore NAACP. We're sending out things literally by the day, um, and we want to make sure that everybody says stay as, as up-to-date as possible with the, re- with the right information, the most accurate information, and information that is strategically uh, aligned with our goals. Thank you so much for having me on this call. I'm grateful and honored. It, it was my pleasure. It's my pleasure, and uh, I certainly want to have you back, and I will certainly have you back uh, along with the senator as well as I do each and every time I, I, I think about something, and I always sit there and I say, who should I get on this call and who should I have? And uh, I didn't know you before today. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you and, and your office and staff, so I want to thank, uh, thank you, and I think uh, Crystal it was that I spoke to. Thank her for me as well. Um, uh, I will. for putting this together and, and allowing us to, to get you and have you over the weekend because uh, sometimes uh, I'm just thinking about who I want to have and whose perspective I really need and I, I felt I need the center's perspective because of his, his, his historical um, background but also because he's there in Georgia and uh, he's a good friend and we've gone back a couple of years now so I, I appreciate the center always being available and of course I'm going to put you in my Rolodex right now so don't run, don't hide because I'm going to find you one way or another, and <laughs> I'm have you back here again. <laughs> but I want to thank my guest tonight, Senator Vincent Fort from Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia, and, of course, uh, Reverend James Woodall, president of the Georgia State NAACP. Black America, it's time to end the white code and the continuing disrespect, the authoritarian, the authoritarian na- uh, attitude that uh, white folks seem to think they have over us, which is what uh, – uh, Brother um, uh, 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 Woodall talked about. And whether it be your workplace on the street, the gas station, or McDonald's, you need to check some of these people and let them know that old boy mentality and perception and somehow what they think it is, it don't fly here. We can't live where we live, drive what we drive, and, and, and go to the schools that we go to. We can do all that. We can do whatever we want to do and we can study where we want to study. And you always get that, like, oh, what, you live here or, or you live there? I mean, we've had people call people, uh, white folks call police on black folks for going into their own apartment building because they didn't think they deserved to live in the condo they lived in. We've had people call uh, police because a woman used uh, uh, coupons. They thought the coupon had expired. They didn't want, it, they didn't want them being able to have that coupon. I mean, these are the things that we've had to deal with as black folks, and it's wrong. It's, I'm, I'm getting tired of it, and it's time for black America for us to get the black reset. We've got the 2020 census, and we've got the November 3rd elections as our reset button, and we've got to push the button to begin to realize that the only way we're going to get where we want to be is through our own efforts and accountability. What I'll say, it's not just talking about stuff in Atlanta. We've got to get down to the south side and do it and put our feet on the ground, put boots on the ground, and do something. As Senator Ford said we have to make sure we help and be responsible and accountable to Aubrey's mother. Those are the things that we have to do. I will use this broadcast and this platform to do all of that at any time and every time. So whatever story you think about, whatever access you want to have, whatever it may be, hit us up at info at Black Politics Today, I-N-F-O at Black Politics Today, and let us know what your viewpoint is and what are the things that you want to hear about, talk about, and let's make sure we have it. But let's make also sure that we do something with the 2020 census and the November 3rd election. Don't sit on your behind and complain if you don't get up off your behind and go do something. So re-register, complete the sentence, and go vote. It's the Black Reset. We have to take it. Good night, everybody.
Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs>